Hi guys, welcome to episode 32 of the Man Vat podcast. As ever, I am joined by Mr. Roman Comrades, producer right. extraordinaire. Hello, Stu. What's How are the, we? I'm all right, well, I'm all right. What's, what's that rumble in the background? Are so, we, we're, we're back on the road again, aren't we? Back on the road. Uh, we're in um, the new passion wagon, shall we call it? The, My the, new the, vehicle. Yeah. Um, I've had to buy a van because I've just got that much stuff among me fat scales, booklets, balls, um, just all sorts of things. So, you know what? I've bought myself a little van to do me running around it. Commitment for you, that's stupid commitment. Yeah, well, do you reckon if I can get it signed sign right up, I'm not too sure, yeah. Get it what? You know, get some signage, some manly fat signage on the side, yeah. the back and stuff like that. Yeah, why not? I've got a couple of posters on the back, but they don't look very good. Oh. But yeah, I might have to invest in some proper signage. So get some vinyls, get some yeah, vinyls Yeah, get some vinyls, get it wrapped. Um, do you know, what? the first time I went to my, my uh, sister's house and my nieces were hanging out the window going, Postman Pat, Postman Pat, because <laughs> it is a red van. It, yes, it is, and it looks like a Postman Pat's van. It does, and um, yeah, so thanks for that, girls. Really <laughs> appreciate that. Um, so yeah, so we're, we're on the road again, and we're going down to Oxford again. Weird, we were here last time for the podcast. We were. Um, when we spoke to the guys at uh, um, Pancreatic Cancer UK. A um, little short one, that, but it was a you know, a little thank you to to the people who raised a lot of money. A salute to the geniuses behind the research, I think. Massive, massive geniuses, then, guys, really are. Um, but yeah, so we're back down in Oxfordshire. We're at, well, books, we're in books, aren't we? Lovely part of the world. Yeah. Um, proper country, not like where we're from, the crime and the, you know, the hustle and bustle. Manchester, industrial city, it is. So we are going to, uh, we're down here talking to Mark Simmons. Uh, we've never met before, have we, Ron? Nope. Uh, and Mark is an author um, and he's wrote a book called Breakdown and Repair. And it basically is a chronicle of Mark's battle with uh, mental health his um, breakdown as such um, due to stresses with work um, he works he works in the corporate world um, and the basically the pressure of work caused him to and most other things have this breakdown and hit rock hit rock bottom which I'm sure he'll tell us um, that's the first half the book's in two parts really uh, I've read pretty much most of it uh, Roman will see if we can get a copy for you off Mark when we get when we meet him. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, it basically chronicles um, Mark's battle with mental health. Uh, the first half, the second half um, switches up a little bit, and it's it focuses on Mark's daughter Emily and her battle with anorexia, um, which is a mental health illness. Um, it's a big killer um, of people with anorexia. It can be absolutely deadly. It's quite common as well. Um, yeah, so we're going to talk to him about the book. We've had quite a few like podcasts recently that have dealt with mental health. I think it's a big topic and I think it's very tiptoed around. I think that's why we're like tackling it head on. Um, not, to, not to be confused with just keep talking about mental health. Um, because it's the 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 in topic at the moment, I think it is certainly such a such a subject that really needs to be taken uh, seriously. Um, again, I think we'll probably find out when we when we um, interview Mark, uh, and also there's obviously in our previous podcasts where people talk about mental health issues, um, and it's different across the board, um, but it really is that you know sometimes you just have to listen. Yeah, I think, you know, if you look at the recent podcasts, um, Gary, Gary Davis's podcast, uh, and thank you everybody who, who messaged us about that podcast as well, um, and his, his battle with PTSD, um, uh, which obviously, you know, is, is one aspect of, of mental health, uh, and then Nate's, Nate Peterson's as well, which was... We weren't really expecting that from Nate, were we? No, um, no, not at all. And Nate felt that he, he wanted to share his battles with uh, mental health. Um, and we've had, you know, lovely messages 
about that and I think Nate's had a couple as well uh, that have said you know thank you for sharing that so we just wanted to speak to a voice that maybe isn't associated with Man V Fat so like I say we, we got in touch with, with Mark um, and said would you want to come on our podcast and talk about your book so yeah so um, next time you hear us we'll be with Mark cheers guys Hi guys, uh, welcome to the Man With Fat podcast. Uh, myself and Roman are down in uh, what, what part? Are we, where would you say? We're, we're, we're in Leafy Box. Leafy, Leafy Box. Box, beautiful area of the country, in probably I think nicest pub we've ever been in my life. <laughs> I have just got to say that, that this is one of the nicest pubs. Well, probably I've just popped my head around there, and it's a, I think it's a gastro pub. This is classed yeah, as yeah, and it is like fine dining over there. It's, yeah. it's unreal. Yeah, yeah, yeah because it was only built about uh, 15 years ago. So that it looks like spanky new. It's actually, it is actually, you know, it's about 15 years old, but it's it's not an oldie worldy pub. Yeah, you know, quite nice. well I, I thought, I said to you, I didn't expect it to be that old, to be fair, I thought it was brand spanking new, this pub. Yeah. Um, but as you just went, no, it's been very well kept. <laughs> so. I have experience in the pub game, as our <laughs> listeners will know. So we are, we are here with Mark Simmons. Mark, how are you? Yeah, yeah, good, good. Thanks a lot for inviting me today. It's great. No problem, no problem. So we're here today to talk to Mark. Uh, Mark has wrote, wrote a book that is out to buy now. The book is called Breakdown and Repair, A Father's Tale of Stress and Success. Tell us a little bit about this book. What, what, what can readers expect if they were to go and purchase this? Yeah, so... Um, Look, I'm I'm sort of in my mid fifties, fifty six year old, and um, I um, have always had sort of issues throughout my life, particularly in the area of sort of stress and anxiety. And uh, um, back in the day, I had a sort of pretty big bait, uh, breakdown caused by by stress at work, um, which played quite an important role in in my life, really, to be honest. And uh, um, I'll tell you a bit about that later on if you want but then also um in the last six years as my my daughter emily went through mental ill health of her own when she suffered from anorexia um, and therefore my role as a as a sufferer changed to a role as a carer uh, and with my wife we kind of helped her get back onto the uh, straight and narrow so there's been two quite big episodes in mental ill health and you know as you know it's a big big topic these days um you know whether we're talking about the world of sport, the world of politics or, or film or theatre, it seems that it's a big, big thing. And uh, I just felt that now was the time to, to come out of the mental health closet a bit from my side and just to tell the world about it. So, but with a view to try to help, help people, really. Yeah. It's, uh, I, I've, I've read, to be fair, most of it. Um, I was kind of speed reading last night to try and finish it, but <laughs> my eyes were just too heavy to go see. Uh, it's a really, really... I think it's a really important book. Um, I really enjoyed it, and a lot of the the points uh, and a lot of the triggers for, for your your breakdown early on um, struck home with me. And I think will strike home with, with a lot of, particularly men who read that. That's quite stressful. Yeah. Just want to go back a bit to the start of the book um, and your uh, breakdown as such. How did that come about? Talk us through that. Yeah, I mean, sort of, if, if you just rewind a bit, is that um, in my book, I sort of, um, uh, I talk about these two genes, these two special genes that I had. One was like a winner gene, because I've always been quite competitive. I've always enjoyed playing sports and sort of taking part and winning. But unfortunately, that was overridden by this other gene called the worry gene. And the worry gene I inherited from my mother, Alice. And that's always meant I've been always quite anxious and stressed. So those two kind of side by side are not a great combination. So you, you're quite ambitious, but you're kind of worried about, about things. So in the world of business, they don't make for great bed partners, if that makes sense. So kind of what happened is that, um, I mean, I had, a, I had a very little blip, a little blip in my mid-20s when, when all of a sudden one day working my first major job I suddenly had a, a, a big, big panic attack where I just froze in front of my in front of my computer and wasn't able to work. And the doctor signed me off for, for a week and gave me some tablets. And I kind of got better and stumbled through the next few years of my life. But then what, what happened in my late 30s was that um, 
I found myself in a job that just wasn't suited to me. So um, there's one thing about my, my character is that I am more of an introvert than an extrovert. So I kind of am happier in my own company. So I'm, I quite like being in pubs, but like on my own. <laughs> <laughs> if that kind of makes sense, I'm really happy to be on my own. I don't need yeah. people around me. Um, whereas I found myself suddenly in a job where I needed to be quite extroverted, so around people all the time. Um, and also, I'm, I'm more of a person that enjoys helping others develop. So I'm, I should have been a teacher, if I'm honest, in my life. I should have been a teacher, should have been something to do with the world of education, but kind of then found myself in this big business world where I had to make decisions and manage people and budgets and so imagine I suddenly found myself in this place where I tried to set up my own business with two other people and just found myself swimming in the wrong in the wrong pond and so late 30s I was so desperate to make this thing work that I just hung on hung on hung on but unfortunately over time what happens is that I think when you find yourself in the wrong kind of occupation is that your brain starts to complain and starts saying, look, you're not doing the right thing. So my, my worry gene was just saying, well, what, what, what exactly are you doing, Mark? You know, and it was so much more powerful than my winner gene because it was just saying this is not where you should be, but I just couldn't give it in, really. So ever so slowly, I started, a bit like Chinese water torture, you know, with that drip, drip, drip effect of just drip. Every day was a bit more stress, a bit more stress, a bit more stress. And then, and then one day, I was at home in front of my computer, Monday morning, turned it on, and the computer like just said no, just like said no, you're not, you can't work anymore. And I, I tried to get through my to-do list, but I just couldn't tick anything off. So I started something, and then my mind started racing towards all of the other things I had to get through. And I said, okay, this is a bit of a bit of a bit of a bit of a sort of little panic here. Got up, cup of coffee, downstairs, back up to the computer, and the computer still said no, like not you know. And so then I started to panic a bit because imagine I was in business now with two other people, and I was sitting at my desk and I couldn't I couldn't work. And these other two guys were really gifted individuals, so I started to panic and catastrophize and. With my wife, we went to the doctor, said, look, we're having a bit of a problem here. And he said, look, you've had a bit of a, a bit of a blip here, you know, a bit of burnout was his expression. Take a couple of weeks off and we're good. Bit of medication, two weeks off, come back. And so I called my two partners and said, look, I've got a bit of a problem here. And they were a little bit shocked, but, but very supportive. I said, that's fine, Mark. two weeks off, come back. So two weeks later, I came back to my home office and the computer just still says <laughs> no. And it's just like, and, and then, then, then it became quite frightening because at that point, I truly had broken down. And so what's interesting about a breakdown is that uh, as a term, it doesn't actually exist in any medical dictionary. There's no, there's no explanation for a breakdown. But for me, it was absolutely that point in time when I simply couldn't work anymore do you feel as though that you could pinpoint that that was it that yeah. was the final drip yeah yeah completely froze in front of you exactly right unable to walk, exactly yeah exactly it's exactly the final drip and then suddenly maybe i don't know the barrel burst or, or the, the the tap just kept on running and the brain just says no and the, the funny thing is that about breakdowns is that is that bizarrely enough they are actually good things because what the brain is saying is is enough. So it's a bit like when you put your hand in a pan of uh, boiling water, the brain just says, take it away. So you take it away quickly. You know, you touch a hot plate, it just takes it away. When you are so, so super stressed and the brain is saying to you, I'm now gonna close you down and you're not gonna do any more work until I, in other words, the brain tell you it's time to come back to work. So it, but it's doing that for your own protection. And so at that point, it just said to Mark, kind of time out. But the problem was, is that you just don't know how long the time out is going to be. So for me, what happened then was that, can you imagine I had to make this really embarrassing but difficult call to my two partners who were busting a gut, you know, doing the business and, and also paying me whilst I was off work. And so look, I'm really sorry, but I can't, I can't work and I'm not quite sure how long it's going to be. So then what, what then happened was that 
is that I was, I am married, three kids. The three kids were, were young, two and five and seven. We had a mortgage, and I was the sole, the sole breader in the household. So all of a sudden, I just, I just thought this is this is this is a nightmare here. So I then entered this really deep, dark, dark, dark depression, and for three or four months, I just couldn't seem to work my way out of things. And I tried everything. I tried medication. I tried tablets. I tried all kinds of talking therapies, like counselling, like meditation, the, like cognitive behaviour therapies. A whole bunch of stuff out there that that kind of worked for a lot of people. But I just, for some reason, I just couldn't, I couldn't get better. I think I was so desperate to get better, to get back to my job, that I think my brain was saying, but Mark, that's the whole problem. I don't want you to go back to your job. But it's like I was fighting all the time between the two. This that makes you, sense. You win a gene and you win a gene. Yeah, they were fighting. The win a gene was just fight the worry gene. And it was like a, it was like this almighty battle. And all the time I was going down and down and down and down. And then it got to a point one day when um, it was the school holidays, the kids had just broken up. I wasn't talking to anybody. I'd, I'd lost all contact with my friends and with my family. And Mel, my wife, uh, July 2001, took the kids out to a friend's just to get them out of the house, you know, get them away from sort of mad dad for a, a few hours. And I just sat there thinking, this is just, I can't go on here. So. Um, this this bit gets a bit gory, so I, I mean I, I'm, I'm happy to share, but this gets a little bit uh, gory. But what happens next is that I'm at home and there's this uh, atlas. We've got an atlas, a world atlas in our living room, and I check out where Beachy Head is. Now Beachy Head is a is a suicide spot on the south coast near near, near Bryson, and we live in Milton Keynes. Okay, near. So I'm, my first thing is, well, but how am I going to get there? <laughs> it's like a bit, because it's quite rash, but how am I going to get there? I can't, I can't drive at this point, so. It's, it's more like a, a, a real um, clear moment in a really unclear kind of episode, isn't it? That, to say? Yeah, because I was clear what I wanted to do. So it was really focused and clear. I was like a man on a mission. Where's Beachy Head? I can't get there. Can't drive. Right. Plan A, no, Plan B, was there was some railway tracks near to where we lived. So I got my bicycle and I cycled 20 minutes down to the railway tracks. And I got there and I couldn't get down to the railway tracks because it was blocked off. And all of a sudden I saw this police car um, by the railway tracks. And I'm not sure to this very day whether that was like a, a hallucination or not. But there were two police officers, and it's almost like saying, "Well, no, that's not going to. It's not. It's not going to." I'm going to laugh because, you, as I tell it, you can't help but. It's the ridiculous. It's the ridiculous. It's, it was so ridiculous. As I tell it, it's so. Plan B wasn't going to work, so I said, "Okay, what's Plan C?" Well, Plan C was there was this little B road, quite near the train tracks, where I knew these ten-ton trucks would come down quite quickly. So that's where I headed, and. Uh, I found, you know, a 10-ton truck coming in a different direction to me and um, and I was, my head was so scrambled, I mean it was so, so scrambled that I said, okay, look, this is the moment. So I threw myself in front of a 10-ton truck and in fact um, it didn't, obviously it didn't, uh, it didn't have the effect, the desired effect and I got helicoptered to the John Radcliffe Hospital in Oxford where I spent two weeks. I had a collapsed lung and some head injuries. And, um, but it's like, I, think, I, mean, I think I also need to know, to, to say at this point here, because when I tell this story, it's, this cannot be a, an advert to how to get better, or because I know it's not the right thing to do. But, but the problem is that at this point, when you, when you do this kind of thing, is that your brain is, 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 is not well. So it's a bit like when you break a leg and you can't walk. Uh, when you're in this state of mind, your brain is broken and it can't think. Um, well actually, it's not, it's not quite, it can't think, it can't think straight. So it can think, but it's telling you all sorts of lies. So at that point, my brain was saying, look, Mark, you're useless. You are a burden on everyone around you. The brave thing to do is to end it. Just, just everyone will be much better off. And it's so powerful and it's so persistent that you just keep on thinking, it must be right. So people often say suicide is a selfish thing. How could you leave 
a wife and three kids behind. What were you thinking? But it, it just misses the point because it wasn't like a conscious act to be selfish. It's just because my brain was not thinking properly. So, um, yeah, so, but then so this happens and I wake up. This is the funny bit here. Uh, again, I say it with a bit of, not funny, but I can't help but smile at it. But what happened? Macabre humor. And it was sort of, you know, the book, the book I mean, the one thing is, uh, Stuart, the book is I try to, even though it's a very dark topic, my goal is to try to make it slightly light by using the illustrations to bring things to life in a kind of accessible kind of way here. So, but what happens is I wake up in hospital and my wife is there with a, with a, with a girlfriend and you can imagine they're the first people I see. And my wife's girlfriend says to me, is there anything I can do for you? <laughs> and, you know, I make a slightly lewd joke, all right? Now, it's not to be repeated, and I don't want to make it, but it, I make this, and it's a sort of thing, but in, the, in, in, the, in three or four months previously, we, we would always be joking like this, and it's, it's banter, it's just banter, it was just, it was, but I hadn't made any jokes for three or four months, and at that point, my wife looked at her girlfriend and said, look, look, I think he's all right, I think he's, all right. You know, he's, he's back. And I'm not quite sure whether it was the, um, the impact of the accident or just the shock of almost losing your life. But I woke up and um, um, I saw things much more clearly in a good way. So I wasn't better, better. But I was suddenly, I'm not quite sure, it was just a massive relief that actually I'm, 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 I'm back. And uh, from that moment onwards, everything turned around. So I still had a mortgage I still you know couldn't work at that point and but for some bizarre reason everything was different and uh, I'm not quite sure until this very day what exactly happened it wasn't the medication it wasn't it, it, I don't know what it was it feels like maybe it was a rock bottom moment and it, it was or a perspective moment that actually the fact you weren't be able to work, to work and you know couldn't be as bad as nearly losing your life. I think so, and your wife and your kids. So I think it was, I mean, my, my, my mother-in-law, who's quite a religious person, she she just said, no, it was, I think it was the hand of God, Mark. You know, I mean, I, mean, I don't know, but maybe it was, but, but that was the moment when uh, I said I was still very fragile going forwards. Um, but my wife um, said to the doctors, she said, funnily enough, before the accident, I was on about half a dozen different medications. I mean, for sleeping, for anxiety, for depression, for psychosis, I mean, uh, for sleeping. And my wife said, look, I just think you should take him off all the medication now because it didn't work. And so they took him off all the medication and nothing really affected me negatively. And so suddenly it was just like, it was a bit like honeymoon or well, you suddenly, you, you, you can't believe that you've been given the second chance again. And so for the next few months, I, I couldn't wait to get up every day. I couldn't wait to sort of do stuff. I didn't want to go to bed at night. And, um, you know, with my wife, everything became so much better. And it was from that moment onwards, it was like a big, big turning point. Yeah. So, really? that, so that was, I mean, that was, I mean, honestly, that was, and I, I, the other thing to say is that, you know, then I did take the decision, look, now's the time to go back to my two partners and say, look, you know, it hasn't worked, this is not right for me here, you know, here are my shares back to you, sell them back to you here, we're done, and it was kind of like, it was like a reborn, now where do we go from here, so that was the real 2001, let's start again, sort of thing, yeah, yeah. Do you feel like that, um looking back and particularly when you were writing Hook do you feel like that chapter of your life do you feel like an outsider looking in or do you feel like yeah I remember the feelings that I had but you feel like it's a different person well I'll tell you what and I, I remember it quite clearly uh, Stu because what I did about two years later was that my kind of therapist counsellor said look i tell you what it's, this still feels a bit raw so what I'd do occasionally is that we'd be having a session and I'd just burst out crying, you know, like no reason. I just burst out crying, like I was, I didn't know why. She said, look, I think what you should do, Mark, is why don't you go home and just write down the whole thing? Write everything down. And I said, okay, well, I quite like writing. So I went back home and then for the next three or four months, I just wrote everything down. 
and I, and I wrote about 15,000 words. And, uh, and what I did was I wrote it down because I'm a management trainer. I couldn't help but write it in a way that was a bit instructional, if that makes sense. Like, if I'd had my time again, what would I have done? And so when I wrote this thing down is that uh, I used it as a chance to also start to plan for how I might go about our lives going forwards. So I said I work in, in, in the world of training and um, so what I did is I developed for myself this sort of like, it sounds a bit sad and forgive me for saying this, but it was like a business plan, you know, like a business plan for myself. And it was like saying, well, okay, what do I want to achieve going forwards in work and with my life? What are my strategies going to be? And what are my little tactics going to be? And how am I going to measure success? So it's only because that's how my mind works. And it was like a way almost to sort of to plan how I wanted to be going forwards so I didn't fall back into the traps I'd been in the past. When you were, you were doing this uh, business plan, um, and like you say, it's to do with the way that you obviously you, you go about your job and, and what works for you in business and just basically adapting that into your recovery. Yeah. yeah. Um, do you feel as though you achieved everything that you wanted to achieve or was there a few more books in the road or, you know, what what kind of percentage would you say, yeah, actually, I, I nailed that 90%, I mean, yeah. you know, 100% or... No, it's a, good, it's a really good question, actually. And um, is that, so in 2002 to 2012, we had 10 great years. I mean, great years. I mean... So when I re reviewed my, my business plan, like in 2012, and went back over, have I achieved? There's lots of ticks. So ticks with amount of time spent with the kids, ticks with amount of time spent with the wife, ticks with have you actually started to spend more time with friends and go into deeper friendships, ticks with I don't work weekends, you know, uh, I don't work beyond seven o'clock. So they were like pathetic little, <laughs> little ticks, but they, they were little things to say, well, you know, this is how we're going here. And uh, and we had this 10 fantastic years. I mean, we were blessed with no major disasters at home. I spent more time with my kids. I didn't work so hard. You know, I exercised, I slept. I did all the good things that you should be doing. And um, the book should have ended in 2012 because life was just great. And, and hopefully it would have been just simply more the same. So to answer your question, yeah, I think I think it was it was a big tick in the box for those ten years, but we hadn't we hadn't been tested. So the issue was in those first those ten years, nothing dramatic had happened to put me under mental pressure again. So it was a bit like I'd spent ten years cruising around the motorway rather than doing the sort of the Dakar rally across the Andes. Does that make sense? Yeah. So I hadn't been tested mentally, but but it'd been tick in the box time. Well, you, you say, you know, it's just a tick in the box and it, and it, you know, it seems like a little thing. But those things, I'm like, this, that's life. Spending time with you, yeah. you know, more of a social life and time with your family and time with your kids and doing things for you and not working. That's life. And it's like you, you, you're going down a list of ticking, you know, it's aspirational for a lot of people to be able yeah. to do that. But, you know, realizing probably without really realizing that that's how you rebuild your life again from, yeah. from, from that moment onwards is yeah. doing the things that make you happy yeah you, you, i think you've never questioned yourself at that point so you know am i not spending enough enough time and then it's time that resentment then sets in it's like with yourself and the family going well he's not even spending enough time with me you know and but because you've planned it in the yeah, way that your yeah, brain's yeah. triggered the way to planned it yeah um with that blueprint which works for you? That worry, that worry gene, as you say, yeah, yeah, yeah. that worry gene has gone. Now nah, this is this is this is pretty solid. Yeah, yeah. And the competition gene, yeah, yeah, gone, yeah, 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 has gone. Yeah, that's my time. I'm going to spend that quality time. Yeah, with yeah. Now go out with some friends, and I'm going to make it the best time because it's that planned time. Yeah, yeah I think you're you right. Kind of a appease both genes, really. Yeah. yeah. Spot on, Rob. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, I think that's Robbie. Robbie's exactly right because they almost had a pact now. Yeah. And they kind of were, were they were both equal partners. They're having them couplehorlicks now in bed. <laughs> That's what they're doing. <laughs> yeah. Do you know what I mean? And that's... Yeah, no, they were. They were saying, okay, we're good here because they were both winning in yeah. a sense. That, you know, Warrior was not going too far. Winner was okay. And we were okay, really, at that point. And I think the point is, is that, you know, I thought, why did it take me to get to my like, late 30s to do this? So what was interesting was that when I wrote the book, um, 
I um, spoke to my eldest son, Will, who was just about to go into the world of work. So imagine a 22-year-old about to go into... And I went to the pub with him, and I sat him down and said, look, son, just to give you a few yeah, heads up about life. And he was like, what you must make sure you do is, is just have a really balanced life. Make sure that you work hard, but you play hard. You don't overtly get into big ambitions. And Will looked at me, and he said, yeah, but I'm doing that, Dad, now, sort of thing. You know, so I'm, you know, he's got a lovely girl, has a lovely girlfriend. You know, work life is perfect. And I just sort of think, well, good for him. But I just wish in my 20s I'd learned this, because I kind of felt I'd almost needed to do something really drastic to be able to learn this. But do you think the appreciation now is, is there for when you spend time, because when you're trying to, tell your son like this is you know you make sure you've got the balance of things like that and your son's not really appreciating what you're saying because he's not gone through what you've gone through and it's like yeah dad was right yeah, yeah. this is this is yeah this is solid now this is yeah know. he might you're right because yeah, i mean he's just like come out of university a few years back so he's not been tested yet mm. so i so said with all these things you maybe need to go through something quite quite serious to sort of realize mm. appreciate how, how balanced, how balanced really. yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah. And how balanced one needs to be to really make the most of life there. I think it's a good point. Well, like we say, like we're going back to what Ron said about kind of getting your, your, your worry genes and your worry genes balanced. It's almost like you set your winner gene on things that weren't work related. So you went, well, the winner yeah. gene, well, I've got this list and I, I want to tick these, these things off yeah. this list. And you kind of set your winner gene on that. And yeah. that was your goal rather yeah. than I want to be here in the corporate world. Yeah. CEO by the yeah. time of 45, you know, and it's like actually you kind of re redirected your, your winner gene onto the good things in life that, family, friends, hmm. you know, taking time for yourself, yeah, looking after yourself and, and sport and, and, and stuff like that. Where the wins should be, essentially, where the yeah. those, and, those, and those wins are. It's always the thing that I know, but the irony is that this is the irony here is that by doing that, by actually setting your ticks. In the right kind of boxes, like you know, friends, family, is that you then become better at work. This is the real. I mean, people don't get this, and I never got it. But actually, if I spend more time at the gym, more time keeping fit, more time out and about, sleeping well, eating, I become more more productive in the workplace. And I thought, well, no, no, you can't. If you're spending time in the gym and not working, you're being less productive. Yeah. Mad, mad. It's, it's like magic, isn't it? Really, <laughs> it is, and it. it it, it kind of goes against everything that you ever get taught. You know, well, you have to work really hard. You have to put the lot, particularly in the corporate world. Yeah. You've got to be there at nine o'clock at night yeah. to meet deadlines. Yeah. And it's like, do you know yeah. what? Actually, looking through the eyes that we look at things now, and, and a lot of these um, mental health issues and yeah. stuff like that, actually, that's not right. No. Concentrate on everything else. Yeah. And, and after yeah. effect of that is, you, you, like I say, you'll be more productive. Yeah. Than it's weird. No, it's like, I mean, it's a bizarre, I had a bit of a digression here, but I must tell you, because I met up with a, a friend yesterday who's left the corporate world, and she is now setting up a new business, and new business is, is trying to promote napping, napping, as in a, a kipping in the workplace. Wow. Okay, so isn't that cool, napping in the workplace? So, so that is that big, uh, quite, uh, that's big in Japan, isn't it? To be like, if you're caught at your desk asleep, I think I read something once. If you're caught at desk asleep, like they're like, oh, this guy's doing the right thing. Yeah, no, it is. I mean, it's, it's, and it's and I, I right now. I mean, why I was so amazed by it was because because I work for myself, and maybe it's a fact of being in my mid fifties. Maybe I need it, but I kind of I work hard in the morning. I, I get through lunch, and at two thirty, three o'clock, I'm just out for the count. So I often, and I always, not often, I always sit half an hour, just find a couch somewhere and just go for it. And then I come back in a really great state of mind, actually. So I think this is really, uh, the, the, the tide is turning even in the corporate world, where people understand, to your point, Stu, that if you have a more balanced life and get all the basics in place, you become more productive in the workplace, period. Yeah. It's really interesting. Yeah, yeah, things, yeah. So, so going back to, to the book, obviously you said you had... An amazing 10 years. Uh, you, you pretty much ticked off everything on your list. You'd flipped your um, worry and your, and your winner gene into the right kind of, guided them into the direction from 2012 onwards, the second half of the book. Well, yeah, because 2012, I, you, you remember, that was the London Olympics. So that, like, the, the nation was in this, in, in, in just like in heaven, winning gold after gold, and, and life was good. 
And then what happened is that uh, by this time, kids-wise, we got um, Jack, my youngest, was um, about 13. Emily was 16, just finished her GCSEs, starting her A-levels, and Will was just finishing his A-levels. So, um, and then suddenly, in the autumn, Emily came home one day from school and confided into us that she was making herself ill. And um, it transpired that she'd developed an eating disorder. And um, it, we didn't know much about it. I mean, Mel and I didn't know much about you know, anorexia, bulimia, uh, just didn't have any friends that had it or children of friends. So we just were not blasé, but we kind of think, okay, well, you know, a few weeks, a few months. And we, we took it straight away to the doctors and um, they were very good about things, but you just didn't get a sense of, you didn't know what was coming. So, um, and it was, it was six years later when last year, 2018, when we were on a family holiday in Mallorca, when Emily was there eating a plate of food and drinking a glass of wine. And we turned towards her and said, we're just so proud <laughs> that you've done this. And even as I say, I get quite choked because six years um, is how long it lasted. Um, and, um, and this was the big test, I mean, for, for, for everyone in the family. Um, because we had a just we went through a just complete nightmare for six years. So um, yes, I mean, if I just take you through, just keep it as, as sort of succinct as I can. What happened? So imagine that Emily comes home. She's developed anorexia nervosa. It is the most lethal of all mental health illnesses. So twenty percent of people die. Um, and um, what happens with the illness is that, is that you are encouraged as parents to first try to deal with it at home. So Emily struggled on at school but found that she couldn't cope at school anymore because she started not eating and became depressed and so what we then did is took her out of school but tried to manage the illness at home and um, we're now sort of probably midway through 2013 and, and what happens with anorexia is that your child is there in front of you and she's got a plate of food and she eats all the food and you think we're good to go and um, she doesn't put on any weight, in fact she loses weight. And so what Emily was doing was that she was hiding her food down her bra or down her socks or when we weren't looking she was feeding the dog the food or what she'd do is she'd eat the food and go upstairs to the toilet and, and be sick or she'd buy laxatives so that she could then sort of pass the food you know when she went to the toilet. So we realized at that point that we were up against this really formidable enemy. Um, and after a sort of six months or so, we couldn't cope. So we then got Emily into an inpatient stay in Oxford where she spent another sort of six to eight weeks. That didn't work. She did, she's, anorexia just kept winning. She, can you imagine an illness so strong, so powerful, that even if you're in a hospital with other patients and lots of staff, it still finds ways of winning. And so that didn't work, and so Emily comes out, and then we, we have to find another way. So we then find, a, we had some medical insurance funding. So we put into into a medical insurance a place privately funded in the hope that that would work. And then seven weeks later, she comes out, and anorexia is one there as well. So so what was sort of happening here sort of for, for Mel and, and I was it was just, we couldn't win. It was, we, were, we were winning, we were losing the battle each time against this, this, this foe, and... Uh, um, and the, the, going back to my earlier point is that I, I have not been the most robust individual and there in front of me was this was depression and, and, and anorexia just face on, head on. So it was quite a test for me as a bloke with depression history to try to get through it. And, uh, um, but the good news was is that what, what, what we found is that when you've got a daughter or a son in trouble, is that it's, it's amazing how resilient you can become. So there was no room in the house for any more depression. I couldn't suddenly have another turn because we just didn't have the time. We, didn't, we couldn't cope with that as well. So what then happens is that, uh, this is quite an interesting little story here. So what happens is Emily's come out of this, this private clinic and they said that we can't help her anymore. And so she's now down to a ridiculous weight. And uh, she says, 
the, the psychiatrist Emily's going to need a six to twelve month stay in a in a in a unit. Is that residential? Yeah, residential, and because six to twelve months is a, it would need to be an NHS place. Okay, so a clear, and then we come out, and there's no beds available anywhere. So there's no beds in the country. So. The doctor says, look, I'm really sorry, but there's no beds for her. And Emily stopped eating now. So she's literally stopped eating. And she's going down from seven to six to five. So she gets a ridiculous low weight. And I said, well, what, what do we do? I don't quite sure why well, there are no beds. So what do we do, though? Well, you've got to wait until she collapses. And then you've got to take her to, to the um, A&E. And they will then look after her. All you can do is make sure she's hydrated. So as a dad, you're saying, well, this is, this is so... Um, what I then do is I get on the internet and I Google every single eating disorder clinic in the UK and I get the list and I phone up every single one and this is hello I'm Mark Simmons my daughter's Emily and she's really ill and we haven't got any beds locally and, and I kept getting this oh, you know really sorry but we've got no beds either and but good luck and then eventually this lovely woman called Lynn St. Louis at this uh, hospital in London said, look, this is very unusual. We never get dads calling. It's always doctors or psychiatrists. And she, I think she almost like took pity on me on the phone. She said, because I was, you know, I, we're, we're desperate. She said, look, I'll tell you what, there's a possibility that the bed might come free in about a week's time. So I might, res I'll, I'll try and reserve for you. It's a bit like, I'll put a towel on it, you know, like on the, 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 the swimming pool thing. I'll put a towel on it, reserve it for your daughter. It's a bit... And I was so grateful. And then so a week later, we got a call from them saying, that's come free. And on the same day, the local place in Oxford also called and said that we've got... A bit like that thing about London buses. You know, when you sort of... You, you, one, you yeah. wait for one and then suddenly two come along. And with my wife, we were like... We had almost won the lottery. We just, we were so pleased. My, wife, my, my daughter was almost dead. I mean, not exaggerated, but she was almost like at death's door. But we'd found a bed for her, so we got into a, into a clinic. And, uh, and then she got into a clinic, and uh, because she was not eating, they had to put a, a tube up her nose just to, just to give her the stuff to, to keep alive. And then, and then Emily sort of imagines she's in this clinic for six months, and she gets to her 18th birthday party, and... She's let out for the afternoon to go to a pub where her friends come. Can you imagine all her friends healthy and happy? And she's this thin waif. And she says, that's the turning point. She said, at that point, she said, this is just ridiculous. All my friends are there, boyfriends, drinking wine with their mums. This can't go on here. So Emily then basically says, at that point, I'm going to start eating. And this is the bummer about anorexia. It's a choice, life choice illness. You decide when you want to get better. So at this point, two years into the illness, she says, right now, I'm going to get better. Started eating, 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 eating. And then three or four months later, she got to a weight whereby she could leave the unit. But the, 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 um, the problem with anorexia is that um, it's a bit like Everest. If you want to conquer it, you've got to get to the top of Everest. What you can't do is you can't stop 200 feet short at that ledge. Because what happens then is that, is that the winds come and they just, they just sweep you off the edge and you fall all the way down. Start again. Start again. Emily left the unit 200 feet short. And we all kind of think, well, she's made such big progress. She's almost there. But she had left it 200 feet short. So the next two years, she, she's just stumbles along, tries to go to university, doesn't get through, does stuff. So she becomes what's termed a functioning anorexic. And what they do is these are people that they're, they're not acute, they, they are not dying, but they can't do stuff. They, they're going to spend the rest of their lives probably with their parents at home and won't have kids because they haven't got periods. They, and so Emily just just stumbled along and we just got to put with Mel where we thought well maybe this is it this is our lot maybe Emily's going to be with us for the rest of our lives and but Emily's a real fighter and she was going to have none of this so she eventually got a, a chance to to go to London working for ITV as a runner now, a runner is the lowest of the low is this a runner is a, is, a, is a runner do you know um, it's where you go get me a coffee go get me coffee <laughs> go get me a coffee and you get a coffee and 
it's where everyone in ITV starts and she did that and there were a few blips but suddenly 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 she started to, 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 to get better and one holiday with Mel, a little mini break, she went to Morocco and she started eating things like couscous and like, and this is like, this is like you don't, you know, this is the, it's, it's the equivalent of me and my little joke, my little Lou joke, you know, the same sort of yeah. thing where, and suddenly, 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 and, so, and suddenly I think probably 2018 last year was the point that we felt the anorexia wars were, were kind of coming to an end. Did it feel like a constant battle for six years? Yeah. Did it feel like it was a war? Yeah, war, war, war. So in the book, you know, I, I try to use the war metaphor. So like, it was like Battle of the Cardinal Clinic or, I don't know, the, 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 the Crusades. So I try to, because it was, it was absolute war. So Anna, our pet name for anorexia, was as evil as you like, so strong-willed. It felt like a complete war. Um, so that, that that section of the book, I kind of term it as the anorexia wars because that's exactly how it was. It was a battle. Yeah. Do you, when um, Emily was in, you know, when the, the anorexia was making her depressed, did you see a lot of um, similarities to, to your time in, in depression or did it feel a bit different? Yeah, no, that's, a, that's a really important question there, Stu, because um, the one advantage I had over my wife Mel was that Mel is normal if, if you know what I mean she doesn't do depression she's not up and down she's not got any depression yeah. base level base level sort of you know won the lottery no move you know the world's about to end no level so but we're kind of up and down up and down so the benefit of my illness is when Emily looked at me and had problems I knew you had to talk to her because Mel's reaction always would have been quite to take quite a logical so Emily why don't you eat more because if you don't eat more then you your bones will start to so she would always be very rational logical whereas if you're very ill mentally you don't react well to that kind of conversation it's always much more of a kind of a irrational tone that you want so you've got to speak almost the language of, of irrational if that makes sense the emotional language there because that's what they they react to so I was able to kind of talk to her in a language that she could resonate with her quite a lot. And that was the benefit of me having been through bad times with her. Today, now, with this book, um, with, like you say, you know, that you had that moment on holiday with Emily last year. Did you, um, have you made another list? Is there another, a set of, targets to go or do you feel as though you're in a place where you know what i probably don't need that now no that's 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 a good it's a good another good it's another great question another great question because with mel um i must tell you this is mel towards the end of emma's illness we persuaded her to go and get some help okay because she was struggling a bit to try to to, to, to reach emily so mel went and got some help from a lovely therapist called holly and uh, she really helped Mel a lot just to have the right kind of conversation with Emily, okay? So, so to answer your question, when, when Emily got better, when she, we felt that she'd kind of conquered anorexia as far as she could do, with Mel we decided that we would, we would um, go and see our respected counsellors again. So Mel went to see Holly and I went to see Sue who'd helped back in the day. But the reason why I went there was because she said we don't take things for granted because we wanted just almost to, to help them help us just to make the right kind of calls going forwards to, 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 to hold our hands as we came out of this sort of really bad time with Emily here so to answer your point is I just don't think you can ever be complacent about about the um, illness with Emily a friend said very very poetical this is that all we can hope for is that Anna is now locked up into a little brain in Emily's brain with the key thrown away but there's always a chance you might get out. And even with me, I, you know, I mean, I don't mind admitting, but even now, um, you know, I still take medication. I still take antidepressants. I still have got a little stash of sleeping tablets for that <laughs> time when, because I've almost got these little, um, these like banisters in place so that when the staircase gets a bit slippery, I've kind of got something to hold on to. So I'm not going to take any chances about things here. And I'm always thinking about, are we, 
playing life right. So I'm always looking for my kids for inspiration about this balancing here. So to answer your question, you know, I'm not taking any chances really. When you um, talk about, you know, constant um, having these banisters in place in case the, the staircase does become slippery or completely falls away. Yeah. Um, do you feel as though you will always need to, you could recognise things coming again and you go, you know what, maybe I need to go back to counselling, maybe I need to up my meds for a bit and see where, do you, or do you think, um, do you feel as though that's something you'll always come back to, you'll always need to go back to it? Obviously you can recognise it. Yeah, yeah, again, so what, what's... Mel, my wife, it's because she's straight and let's say normal. I sort of said that one thing that I really would like you to do is to become my early warning system. So when so I, I start getting a bit serious, or I start getting a little bit tetchy or a little bit, I don't know, worried or I, I don't know, she'll kind of knock on the door and say, Mark, you know, how are we doing? How's the things going? And so often you need to have someone else just to sort of to, 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 to put the mirror up in front of you. Okay, so I'm, I'm so not taking any chance. I mean, one thing that I, I am, I think it's quite important, a really big message here, is that Emily now is an assistant, an assistant producer on This Morning. She's 23, she didn't get her A-levels, uh, she didn't go to university, and she's took a completely random route to where she's now. She's, she's flying now. And I'm also trying to do stuff okay I'm trying to sort of just to push out the boat you know I'm trying to do good stuff at work write books join the mental health crusade I am not going to let my my anxiety or my stress define my my tombstone so I'm really <laughs> I've got this thing in the book I talk about tombstones it's a bit morbid now but I don't want to we like morbid it's okay let me say but it's important it's like the tombstone could be look look Mark had a bad blip he played it safe and he retired peacefully to a little bungalow on the south coast. Or, you know, Mark had a blip, but he went for it again. He looked after himself and, you know, he either ended up in a caravan in Scotland having tried and failed miserably, or he ended up in the south of France sort of thing. So what I'm trying to do is, that for people that have gone through mental ill health problems or, or currently got it, is just to go for it, because they let it become a defining factor. So with Emily, I just hope she reaches the stars. She will get to the top of Everest. And, you know, now in my mid-50s, you know, I'm becoming more conscious about the fact that I don't want to leave the earth having left something on the pitch, so to speak. And I'm not going to be worrying about stuff, even though I still get anxious, I still get stressed, I still kind of get, you know, a bit tetchy. And uh, the one thing actually, one other gene that I must quickly talk about is uh, one gene that's come to the fore, the, the winner gene and the worry gene. But the other gene that came about was the warrior gene. As in the warrior gene is the gene which, uh, and that's with an A, the warrior gene. It's like a, the gene where, okay, you've got to give it a go now, and it's going to be ugly sometimes, and sometimes you'll get a bit anxious, you'll get a bit angry, but just give it a go <laughs> and see what happens. So for me, that represents this thing about just not letting your mental ill health get in the way of you doing good things. I think that's really, really key as a message. Fantastic. Do you feel as though you can see it in other people now? Obviously, you write, you write books and, and like you say, you want to go and, and um, you know, help people and, and, and get the word out that you can still thrive no matter if you've got a, a, a worry gene or if you've got a, um, a, a winner gene. Do you feel as though you can see it in other people now? Well, I, I mean, I, I mean, to answer that, to answer that, Question: The very last page of my book. Yeah, we've got that, have you? Probably because no. you're probably tonight. Already, <laughs> wait, wait, wait! Spoilers alert! <laughs> Spoilers for me, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, just thought I'd just to make sure you do. But in my, in my book is that I do mention this, um, my hero. So I say, if there's one person from the world of entertainment I would like to have met during my lifetime to say thank you to, it would have been Robin Williams the great American comedian and actor, okay? Tragically, in 2014, at the age of 63, uh, in his California home, he died by suicide. But during his life, he had suffered from alcohol and drug addiction, as well as depression and dementia. 
but didn't he achieve a lot during his career despite his many problems and challenges? What an incredible life's work. What a legacy to anybody with a sense of humour or a sense of soul. So there's just people out there that uh, you just think, well, good for you. I mean, in today's world, someone like Alistair Campbell, the politician, has come out, you know, very openly about his, his battles with depression. So I just think there are people out there that are just showing the way in terms of you can do it. And I think that's my, my big thing is that they have defeated their mental illness to achieve great things, which is, which is fantastic, I think. Absolutely excellent. Mark, thank you very much. I was just quite happy we got a bit of narration on oh, a bit of the a, That was amazing. It was like Jack and Ori, wasn't yeah. it? Yeah. Uh, thank you very much for sharing your story and telling us about the book. The book is called Breakdown and Repair by Mark Timmons. You can get it on Amazon, any quality bookstore. Um, just to finish with, tell us, uh, you were telling us pre-recording about you uh, going on this morning and meeting Holly and Phil. Yeah, literally last week. Yeah, no, no, no this is, I mean, the, it was an amazing thing where, imagine last week, um, partly through Emily because she works there, but she she was worried that my dad, she, she said, my dad's getting quite a lot of publicity now, like like today, for example, so she just felt that she had to tell her bosses that, the, that, that, that her story might come out in the open. And she just wanted them to be, to know that she'd suffered quite badly. And so when she told her bosses, they said, look, not I Emmy, mean, not a problem, you're doing so well. Oh, but, but would your dad be prepared to come in? And last Thursday was World Mental Health Awareness Day, and the, the theme was suicide prevention. So basically, we, we went down with uh, with Emily and um, to to the whole setup in the ITV, and we sat in the famous green room where you wait, where all the guests wait to go on, and. Uh, and, but it, it was really, it was, it was for me, it was nerve-wracking because you go through a whole process of, like, like makeup, where they look, <laughs> they look ten years younger, which is good news, and you just simply go through a whole process, get properly briefed, and you turn up, and then how it works, just everyone to know, it's really interesting. You, you actually don't meet Phil and Holly until you're actually on the set. So in the interval break, you go on when the break starts, and you've got three minutes to get to know them, to say hello. They relax you, they put you at ease, you know roughly where their question is going to go, and then basically it is like club three, two, one, and it's just go. And it was just, uh, it was just cool, and it's, it, so the clip came out, and uh, you know, by all accounts, we did all, we did all right, and uh, it was just super cool. Yeah. Good, such an important message to get out of there, and I'm sure that uh, Holly will be completely relaxed. Because <laughs> I know if I met her, she would completely no, relax they me. Were both, they were both. <laughs> Thank you so much for sharing okay, your story. Like I say, guys listening, particularly if you um, have experienced mental health, or if you don't, if you don't, uh, oh, I'm sure there'll be people out there who know somebody, friends, family. One last, one last of course thing. you can. One, one last thing, this is a plug. So, but the book is not a boring book. So the feedback I've got from people is that once you've figured out, you can't put it down. So I'm, I'm trying to make it accessible. So it, it is kind of like a sort of a... I wouldn't say a fun read, but it's not a difficult read. Well, it's I'm, not a difficult I'm read. I'm just going to say something which I was going to mention before, but kind of carried away. The first thing I noticed was the illustrations, and I was flicking through it in the car with Stu, um, and you said something about that you didn't want it to be looking like any other book. I mean, I'm looking at this book, and it looks like it's been, it's like the illustrations of Roald Dahl or um, Quentin Blake. Well, well yeah, because it's, I mean, I'm conscious that we've gone beyond the time, but just quickly, the okay. Lucy, there's no Lu time limit, uh, don't you worry. Okay, no, okay, okay. but um, no, the, the, the nice thing is Lucy Stroll, um, a 26-year-old graphic designer, uh, a sort of a daughter of a friend, um, I said to her, look, I'd love to illustrate the book, and she had to think about it, she said, she, 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 came up to me and she, put a, she put a book of Grace and Perry on the table, and Grace and Perry, Perry is this sort of very famous creative person he's got a certain way of illustrating and, and she said well i can do that <laughs> so i can do that so what she then did is that she basically throughout the book there's about a hundred illustrations in the book that tell the story so you could almost you could almost get the story just through the illustrations and so that was the brief to her is that can you tell the story simply through the illustration so if you're not a, a words person 
but more illustration. And they're, they're all a little bit dark humorish, a little bit like dry, but I think they, 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 do, they do the trick. They do, they add to the book, definitely. Yeah. Definitely. And it is, it is completely, um, like you say, it, it's really hard to put down. Um, I, uh, in my usual incredible prep that I do for this podcast, started reading it about a week ago and I was like, every little minute I was like, I need to get some more, get some more. And the time was just flying yeah. by. But I, I am going to finish it, promise you. But yeah, Mark, thank you very much for coming and thank speaking to us much. today. It's a really important message to get out there, um, particularly at this time. So we'll be back soon with another podcast. Uh, you can catch us Facebook. Mammy Fat Podcast, Twitter, MVF Pod, uh, SoundCloud, Spotify, yep. iTunes, we're on all the socials. Speak to you soon.